Chugga, 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 chugga. Choo, choo. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the 113th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is Dan, and I got Brian here with me. Hey, Brian. Hey, everybody. We've hopped on the train, just pulling out of the station now. That's right. It's theme month time, guys. This is our fifth theme month in our podcast's history. We've gotten in the cadence of doing two a year, one organized by me and one organized by Brian. This is my theme month, and it will be train month. Train month. So, Brian, do we have a a catchy way of saying train month or slogan, anything like that? That you can think of? I don't know. Maybe it'll kind of organically develop. Yeah, we'll workshop it. Yeah. Um, Our previous theme months, we did a time loop month back in February of 2021. Then we did a, you you did circus month after that. Then I did young adult book adaptation month. And then our most recent one was we did Anna month. We called it was movies before 1990 that were animated and not released by Disney. And For the first selection of Train Month, I had Brian watch the 1945 romantic drama Brief Encounter. It's a British film directed by David Lean. So, Brian, you had not seen this before, but you had seen at least one David Lean film, probably multiple. Yes, I believe I've seen a couple because previously on the podcast, we watched Summertime which I think you said you had seen Brief Encounter and it made you curious about that one, Summertime. Uh, But the David Lean films I had been familiar with prior to that were, uh, didn't he do Bridge on the River Kwai? Yep. And Lawrence of Arabia. And also Lawrence of Arabia, yes. Dr. Zhivago, or however you say it. Uh, Passage to India was his last film. So his career, it's kind of breaks into two halves. He he did more epics in his second half and he did smaller scale dramas in the first half. And like he did a couple of Dickens adaptations in the first half of his career. Interesting. So I was reading a little bit about him in preparation for this week. I think he's a really interesting figure. He's one of the great British directors. And here's a quote from one of his fellow directors named Hugh Hudson. This is what he wrote about David Lean. Born in the Edwardian era, Lean experienced firsthand the decline of the British Empire. He lived through two world wars and matured as an artist during the 50s, when Britain was being forced to re-examine her new role. Having grown up during the demise of the British influence in the world, he also had an acutely critical view of British society, so Lean's work contains an interesting paradox. The strong visual and literacy legacy of British culture which he loved and understood so well, combined with biting insights into the ludicrous aspects of a nation being forced to accept a less important role in the world. Now, I think texturally that makes more sense with films like Bridge on the River Kwai and Epics. Um, But I think, and we can talk a little bit about this, you see a lot of that under the surface in Brief Encounter. Yeah, I think so. It's about Twilight, the fading I'll just chime in for a second to say I think the term the Edwardian era is pretty weird because Edward was king from 1901 to 1910. So it's just like nine years. That would be like if you referred to the Clintonian era or something. (laughs) One American president who had two terms. The H.W. era is when I was born. Right. Like 
Victorian makes sense because she was queen for like 50 plus years. Right. But some, it doesn't work as well. I'm trying to think like, what are, what would be some other ways to break up eras? It's like, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously Queen Elizabeth, that's not, like, you had so much change under her that you can't even call that a distinct era, you know? Sure. Yeah, she's got the longest reign yet. But, I mean, decades work pretty well as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I like that. Decades work. And then also, I think, generations. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but shared experiences of millennials and Gen X and all that. Y- you know what? Maybe that's why they fell back on Edwardian era, because they didn't know what to call that decade, you know? They didn't want to say the aughts. And I guess British like to think of things in terms of who their royalty was. Those weirdos. Oh, yeah, I forgot. We got to be nice because uh, we have at least one person from the British Isles who listens to this pod occasionally. Oh, speaking of, I went uh, last week to a Robert Burns night party where they played the bagpipes and presented the ceremonial haggis. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah. How is haggis, Brian? Tell us about haggis. It's kind of gamey. I mean, it tastes the way that pretty much all organ meats taste, which is like a little bit metallic. Yeah. I feel like liver is distinctive because that flavor is so concentrated, but pretty much every organ tastes a little bit like that. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And speaking of Thrash, uh, also known as Andrew, he he's the one who lives in Scotland and he has joined our discord and he's listened to a few of the episodes and he also hosts his own podcast called two friends watch. Um, and he invited me to join that podcast. Um, probably that episode will be out by the time that this one is out. Uh, we talked about a goofy movie, which is a film that both of us feel strongly for Brian. Right. And you especially Dan. So I'm looking forward to that episode. Come find us on the Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, and I will point you all towards that. So, Brian, back to the topic at hand, Brief Encounter, 1945. So I've talked about this before, and I think one thing I said last week when I was introducing it, if not in the past, is that I consider this to be the ultimate train movie. And so I don't want you to answer that right now, but let's circle back to that. So... When I think of train movies, this is the first one I think of. And and let's see if that is an apt descriptor by the time we, we wrap our, our film. Okay, but aside from this one, Dan, at this point, how familiar would you say you are with the train genre? <laughs> yeah, the train corpus out there. Um, medium. I've seen some of the great ones, and I'm missing some great ones. So I think we should, not this week, but at some point dig into some of the the role of trains in the history of cinema and maybe that will just come out organically in our selections but it's been there from the start because of you know the lumiere brothers it wasn't from their first night the the night that founded cinema back in i think it was 1895 but it was like less than a month after that um or maybe less than a year after that the lumiere brothers had their famous train movie so it's like one of the first 15 movies ever made was a train movie Absolutely. I just started yet another film history class. I've taken so many film history classes, I probably could have and maybe should have tested out of it. But all the cool people who went into the documentary track, that's the only class I get to see them in. So I thought I better still take it. But yeah, we were just watching Arrival of a Train at La Cieta. Yeah. So it's definitely been in the DNA of movies. So 
I wouldn't say I'm a I'm an expert on on the matter. Right. All I will say at this point is that, and I may have said it before, I came up with like 15 good possibilities for this month, and we each pick two. So, Train Month has the potential to stretch. You know, <laughs> this may not be the last you see of train movies, depending on what our experience is like. Absolutely, yeah. So, I guess one thing we've done some theme months, not every theme month, is have a topic of the week that's related to the theme month. So, Brian, here's my train-related topic of the week is when you are simulating a train with your voice, how many chuggas do you say before you say choo-choo? Let's hear you do it. It's either two or four. Okay. I think my go-to would be chugga-chugga-choo-choo, but if you do four, that sounds okay as well. I believe you opened the episode with four. Okay, chugga, 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 choo-choo. That does sound right to me. I've heard five is a popular one. Let's try that out. See how that sounds. Chugga, 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 choo, choo. Okay. I think four is better. Yeah. Five is a little like syncopated to me. That's like getting into math rock territory or something. I've also heard seven. Let's try seven. Chugga, 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 choo. Wait, no, that, that was only six. Chugga, 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 chugga. No, that's eight. I don't know, man. It's It's quite a lot. You know, I think an even number. I think an even number is the way to go, though. I, I like two. Yeah, that's that's my feeling. Here's a question, though, Dan. If you demonstrate applause, how many times do you clap your hands? Do you have a set number of times? If I demonstrate applause. Like, uh, just imagine that you started clapping and there's, like, not people around to gauge how long to go for. How many claps do you do? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know. I, I really have no concept of, of what my number of my natural number of claps is, and I can't practice it right now because I'm just thinking about it. What about you, Brian? For me, it's 15. 15. That's the comfortable number of claps. You can just let that one sit with you. You know, it may not sound great over the microphone. No, but... I was just 15. I, I just did it like 15 claps myself, and that felt approximately right. I, I kind of naturally went two or three past that, so maybe... I'm closer to like a 17 or something. Right. I don't, I don't like to be the last person in the auditorium doing it. No. Yeah. 15, though, is usually where it falls off. So. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I'll definitely have to count next time I'm in a scenario where I need to applaud for someone. Uh, okay. Let's dive into to Brief Encounter, Brian. So um, this movie opens at a train station and we kind of get as setting the stage some footage of a train running through the, the station and I got to say, one of the reasons I love this movie and one of the reasons I consider it the ultimate train movie in some ways is that the footage of the train itself is like really awe-inspiring. You feel its tremendous power. Um, I think it's a very potent symbol relevant to the themes of the film as well. Any? Did you agree with me? Did you like the way that they shot these trains, Brian? Yeah, I agree. I definitely was struck that it's the very first thing in the movie is here's the train, so... Okay, check the box. This is a train movie. Train month. Yep, it's done. Yeah. And then we zoom in to the inside of the station. I guess it's like a cafe area of the station. And we see a man and a woman who are at a table and they're kind of having a conversation over some tea. And they are Laura Jessen and Dr. Alec Harvey. They're played by Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. And we don't hear what they're saying, but their conversation is interrupted by a chatty friend who appears. She she recognizes Laura and 
Dr. Harvey, he, he gets another cup of tea, but then he kind of says goodbye. And he gives Laura's shoulder a squeeze as he departs. And Laura continues kind of sitting there with her chatty friend. And, and at one point she steps outside for a moment, but then she kind of comes back in and then it's not quite clear why she has stepped outside or come back in, but then they go and they, they catch their train together to go home. We learn from kind of the casual conversation that Laura is married. She has two kids and also the doctor who's there, Dr. Harvey, he's married and he also has two kids. And while this woman, this chatty friend who had showed up and is, is riding with Laura down the train is just going on and on and on ridiculous British accent talking about British things. The movie kind of pops into Laura's head and we start to hear her internal narrated monologue about what she's thinking. And she talks about how she's kind of feeling agony and, and she both, she wants to remember every minute of, of what has just passed behind her. And it's not clear exactly what it is, but obviously tied to this doctor. And uh, then she gets home and we see that she lives a pretty nice domestic life. She's got some stuff to sort out there, but she has a very happy and functional family. And she has this husband who's very genial, uh, not especially perceptive, we see. But, you know, it's not like she has this toxic life that's going on. It's got it's a pretty normal, happy suburban life. Right. It seems pretty nice. And I would say it's pretty clear that she's also like upper middle class. You know, she's not royalty or nobility or whatever you call it, but she she's well off. They have a nice house. They can sit and smoke their pipes and do their crossword puzzles and sit in their lounge chairs and turn on records and stuff. Right. And the husband goes to work and she can do the marketing during the week. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that evening kind of after the they've done the the domestic routines, they are they've retired to the drawing room, I suppose. And she turns on this album and it's a Rachmaninoff piano concerto. I think it's piano concerto number two or something. I'm not quite familiar enough with Rachmaninoff's piano concertos to tell you much about the character of this one, but uh, I think it's a really lovely piece and it serves as a sort of swooning soundtrack for the rest of the film. Because what we do is we pop back into her head and she starts to like narrate out, not aloud, but just in her thoughts, a sort of confession to her husband about what has been bothering her and why she's kind of feeling so distant and so melancholy at the moment. And so this, I really like the the way that this piece gets used because it, it's a soundtrack to everything that's happening, but it's kind of explained in an interesting way because she's like reflecting on what just happened, but in real time, she's actually listening to this concerto. It's kind of clever. So my thought on this, and it doesn't pertain to the movie too much, but why did classical composers just number their pieces instead of giving them titles? Like, if you're going to pour out your soul and all your talent and make a symphony, why do you just say, well, that's number five. <laughs> Let's start number six. Yeah, that's a good question. Some composers didn't do that, but I think, I don't know. I think it's a blend of like, it makes it easier to categorize because classical music tends to fit very neatly into forms more so than rock music or whatever. And I don't know why, just adherence to tradition, but... For example, like Beethoven actually named some of his symphonies, like the third symphony is called Eroica, 
uh, E-R-O-I-C-A, which I guess is German for heroic or something or hero. I don't know. But some of them name them. And like, uh, I think there's the one of the last symphonies that Mozart wrote is called the Jupiter Symphony. But at least some of the names that you sometimes hear are like informal. So I don't know. Imagine if they didn't name movies. They just called it like drama number three. Yeah, exactly. Let's go watch Lean's drama number three. <laughs> so anyways, she's she's kind of thinking through what had happened. And she does emphasize that she feels happily married. And we must never forget that, she says. But we we get a flashback to several weeks earlier. And it's back at that same train station cafe where the movie opened. And she spots out of the corner of her eye, Dr. Harvey. But at this point, she does not know Dr. Harvey. And as she's going out to the platform to, to catch her train, the, the train kicks up this piece of grit and it gets in her eye. And when she kind of can't get it out and her, it's, it's bothering her eye, her eyes watering, Dr. Harvey steps up and says, oh, I'm a doctor. Here, let me help you get that grit out of her eye. And he has this little like uh, handkerchief or something and he dabs the her eye and gets the the piece of grit out. And it's kind of an interesting way for them to meet. For one thing, it's very much like an intimate close thing. It's like I remember in when I was in school, if I ever had to ask someone, particularly a girl, to like zip my backpack or get something out of my backpack while my backpack was on and they would, you know, they had to like walk right up to you and do that for you. It's like, I don't know what it is about that, but it just felt very tense and intimate to have to, to share such a physical space. Yeah, it's like a meat cute, but it's also kind of gross because you're dealing with eyes balls. Yeah, I know you, you get squeamish around eyes and eye injuries, Brian. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it's a good good to have somebody in your corner who can deal with eye issues if you suddenly are faced with one. Definitely. Yeah. Have you ever had a, an eye injury, Brian? No, thankfully. Yeah. N- knock on wood. <laughs> I mean, I've had stuff caught in there, sure. obviously, like she does here. Nothing too major, but stuff I've had to dig out. What about you? What's your ophthalmic history, Dan? Yeah, so I, I have had one medium significant injury to my eye. And the story was, oh, how deep to go into the story? Because there's a lot of context Oh, go for it. Just tell it. And I'm clenched. Uh, so basically, when I was in college, uh, the house that I lived in was like on this this unlit road about a mile off campus. And when you drove down that road, it was kind of like right at the crossover between where students would live and where townies would live. So you kind of had a mix of people there. And one of the houses we always called the drug house. Uh, we had heard that people could go and buy drugs there. It was like halfway up the road. I was only asking for directions there to know how to get away from there. <laughs> and, you know, every now and then something really weird would happen there. And like one time we went by and the sliding glass door was just shattered. We don't know why. There was like a, a tarp hanging where the sliding glass door had been. So you, just weird stuff like that every now and then. They'd like have cars that would sit out there for months at a time and then disappear again. And you never knew what was going on. So anyways, when I lived in this house, I was the older class who lived in this house. And so I graduated and I came back one time. And when we came back, I, I stayed there because my friends still live there. And we went out to get drinks. 
and we walked so you could walk it was like a long walk it was like a mile to the nearest bar and we would go there and and you know we would drink probably a little bit too much my wife to be we were i th- can't remember if we were quite yet engaged but it was right around the time we got engaged she came with me and uh we went out drinking and then as we were walking back you have to pass the drug house to get back to the house where we were staying and so of course, we had had some drinks. We're like, hey, essentially a dare to go and run a lap around the drug house and then go back to our house. So it was like, oh, we're going to mess with the the drug dealers there. Of course, you're running around. It's the stupidest thing on so many levels. Like, first of all, what, you're going to run around their house. That's not going to mess with them. And even if you do mess with them, like all they're going to do is be like, who's that weirdo out there? And then we'll be gone. And then there's nothing they can do about it. I don't know. So, you know, you never have good ideas when you've, when you've drank to excess. Anyways, we did it. And while we were doing it, it was really, really dark. That street is poorly lit. And I ran into a tree with my eye open and the tree branch hit my eye. Oh, and it really hurt. And I fell asleep. It was like stinging. It, it felt like there was something in there. And I fell asleep. And then when I woke up like two hours later, my eye was just like gushing tears, fluids out and my whole eye completely stinged. And I was like, we got to go to the ER for this eye. This like normally you don't wake up with your eye in this situation. And uh, it turned out what happened was it was a very long, shallow scratch which meant it was like exceedingly painful for two days, but did no long-term damage. But I had to wear like a eye patch for one day and I had to wear sunglasses for two weeks whenever I was out in the sun. And uh, it was very uncomfortable, but yeah. Ugh, that's gnarly. No, it was, it was not good. Well, thank you for sharing. You and your brothers have some good injury stories. Oh, man. Uh, was it Patrick who got impaled on the fence? Yeah, yeah. My brother, who's about three years younger than me, he was doing parkour one time. And as one does, he claims he was not drinking uh, at college. And I think he was going back to visit. I think he had graduated uh, or maybe it was his senior year or something. And he jumped over a fence as part of this goofy parkour, fake parkour they were doing. And it was like a, a fence that has a sharp top spire and it got him in the arm and it happened to get one of like those arteries that is like where all the blood in your body throws flows through. And he lost a tremendous amount of blood. He had, they had to like cut open major parts of his arm to like reconstruct this artery. At one point it was not clear whether the arm was going to be saved. Like he would have had to lose the arm. Like it's really a scary thing to think about. And he now has this monster scar. Yeah, I'm like surprised he survived. I saw the scars after the fact, and it's the worst scar I've ever seen. It looks like a shark attack, like Frankenstein train track stitch scars. Yeah. Anyways. Well, we're back on track, right? Train tracks. There you go. That's That'll do it. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. So now she's met this doctor. He helped her eye and they say farewell. But it turns out, like you were saying, that that Laura, part of her routine as the housewife is every Thursday she goes out to do weekly shopping and weekly errands. And she just keeps bumping into Dr. Harvey because it turns out that he has something he does on Thursday. He goes and works at a specific hospital on Thursdays. And 
Uh, they bump into each other a couple times. And then at one point he bumps into her at lunch and she invites him to share a lunch table with him. So they start talking and they agree to go see a movie together. And it's pretty clear that at once that they've like immediately hit it off. They have like similar senses of humor, making fun of the cheesy musicians at the restaurant and then at the movie theater and at the movies. They seem to like the same movies and dislike the same movies. And it's interesting. At some point, they like acknowledge that they are each married and they bring up their spouses. And when they do so, it's in very perfunctory terms. Like she describes her husband as medium height, brown hair, kindly, not too emotional, which is a very strange way to describe the person that you're spending your life with. You know, that's like how you describe, I don't know, a patient if you were a doctor or something, you know, (laughs) or like a suspect you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. What made me laugh in this scene is when they're watching the movie and there's a trailer or like a commercial before the movie and they're like, come on down to Terrence's department store and where you can buy wedding rings and baby carriages. <laughs> All the stuff you need at a hardware store. Yeah, but just the idea that, you know, they've they've started on this path that they're not supposed to be on towards intimacy. That's true. Yeah. And it's blended into like this very routine and run of the mill experiences they're, they're having of like going out and shopping and stuff. To me, Harvey is not a very sexy name. <laughs> I guess he is a doctor, so he's got that going for him, but... It's Alec Harvey. So what about Alec? Alec. Okay. All right. Alec is pretty good. That's yeah. that's pretty hot. Okay. Laura is a bit too mid-century for me. Yeah, I got no problem with Laura. It's fine. It's not bad. You You still meet Laura's. I had Laura's in my class in high school. I always am going to hear Laura in Steve Urkel's voice. <laughs> Laura. And then as the day is winding down after they've seen this movie together, they're back at that cafe again in at the train station. It's like the hub of all of their experiences and they are kind of talking about their lives in a little bit more personal detail and Dr. Harvey admits that he's very idealistic about what he does in particular about preventative medicine. And it's a moment that I didn't remember as being funny, but then I was actually laughing out loud as it was happening the second time through, because I had seen this movie once before. I'm not sure if I said this was my second time watching it, but he's like describing with these very medical terms what preventative medicine is. And it does like this dramatic romantic zoom in on her face where she you could see that she's falling for him in this moment. But it's just funny because it's like juxtaposed to this this very formal medical speak. And I think it's intentional, like it's not unintentionally cheesy, but it's just like this weird kind of circumstance that they find themselves in where like they kind of have to be, you know, former, formal and proper, but also like just under the surface are these strong feelings. And in that regard, I don't think it's a surprise what movie that we've talked about that this really reminded me of, Brian. I assume you had the same one. Well, I was about to talk about a movie it made me really think of, and we'll see if it's the same movie. I don't know if it's going to be the same movie, but for me, it had me thinking of the scene in La La Land when Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling are are talking. They're like walking around the back lot and Ryan Gosling is talking about jazz and, you know, Emma Stone doesn't love jazz, but she's like really into how passionate he is talking about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That 
That's a very good connection. She says, people like to know what people are passionate about. Because it is pretty much the same thing. It's like the fact that he's passionate about it is what sparks her. But what were you thinking of? Well, this whole movie makes me think of In the Mood for Love. Yes. And actually, I did reference that towards the end of the film um, when I was talking to you on Facebook Messenger, as I almost always am. Yes, I, I saw that as well. Yeah, we'll see a lot of connections as we go. And there's one other movie that is very directly connected to this in a way that is slightly less obvious, but we'll get there in a second, too. So anyways, they agree to, quote unquote, bump into each other. Uh, They don't actually say bump into each other, but, you know, intentionally find each other on this day where they both happen to be out once again. And she obviously is feeling like very mixed about this, because as she's said, she's always considered herself stable and happily married and all that. And so when she get home, she's kind of decided to share it with her husband. And he, she describes how she met this doctor while she was out and they went and saw a movie together. And he's like, oh, that's nice. Hey, help me with this crossword puzzle. And she's like, well, I was thinking, you know, I don't know, maybe we could invite them to dinner or something. And he's like, ah, maybe. Dinner is so inconvenient. And he's just like not at all aware of what, she's feeling as she's saying these things yeah i thought that was pretty funny yeah and uh over the course of the next week because remember now they can only see each other on thursdays because that's the day that he goes to the hospital and that's the day that she goes out for her shopping so you have these interesting gaps in between their meetings where like they're kind of processing what's happening in their relationship but the next week over that week she kind of convinces herself that what she thought she felt, maybe she didn't exactly feel. And really, this could just be a silly friendship because, you know, Fred didn't even mind about it at all. Uh, That's her husband. But when she goes to meet the doctor, Dr. Harvey, the next Thursday, he does not show up and she's feeling devastated by it. So obviously, it's more than just a silly friendship. And right as she's about to leave, he dramatically rushes in. You know, she's about to go pick up her train. He got held up at the hospital for this or that. And they agree to meet again the following Thursday. So it's clearly become a thing at this point. It made me think about how convenient cell phones are. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. It's like just one could call the other now and they would sort this out. So many old movies and TV shows could be drastically different if there were cell phones. The one I've always heard is that half of the plots of Seinfeld would be irrelevant if you had cell phones. (laughs) <laughs> like the the famous one waiting for the Chinese restaurant, but then you have like, t- he has tickets for something else or something, but he's trying to get in touch with someone and they call and they say, Cartwright, Cartwright, but it's Costanza. And then he said, were there any calls for me? Yeah, I called for you. It was Cartwright. And then he walks away. He says to Jerry, apparently I'm Cartwright. And Jerry says, you're not Cartwright. And George says, of course, I'm not Cartwright. It's one of my favorite uh, Seinfeld quotes. Of course, I'm not Cartwright. I love that moment. <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, cell phones would help probably. But then they could do their texting on the sly with their phones, you know. Right. So over the next few weeks, they every Thursday, they spend their their days together after she does her shopping. And they do stuff like they go see movies together. And they go out rowing on boats together. And at some point, he confesses that he has fallen in love with her. 
and that he suspects that she has for him as well, which she admits. And it's kind of like the mo- the moment that the the romance kind of you know overflows the circumstances that they're in. And one thing that really struck me when I was watching this time is that it's very much like opposite the way that her husband has no clue at whatever is going on in her brain. And time and time again, Dr. Harvey like can tell you exactly what she's feeling. And he, he'll say something like, Oh, I know that what you're feeling is blank. And she's like, yeah, I am feeling that. And he said, you feel exactly this too, right? She says, yes, I feel that. Whereas her husband just is completely clueless about what's going on in her head. It's definitely like the, a juxtaposition there comparison. You're right. And so now, you know, that they've expressed their feelings. Laura enters that classic tug of war for, you know, potential adulterers and stories like this, where are they going to pull back on the romance or are they going to plunge deeper into passion? And in this case, all of that tension about like, what's the right thing to do is, is very much heightened by this whole British sense of propriety, like before, you know, the social revolution of the sixties and stuff where everything has to be prim and proper. And there's a lot of talk about what, it, what is, what is sensible, what is proper in everything that they're doing. So that kind of adds an extra layer of tension, I think. But these, these Thursday meetings, they grow ro- more and more romantic as the, the movie goes. So one of the last ones is they have a, a fancy lunch with a bottle of champagne they do a romantic drive through the countryside in these two-seater cars. And so as this is happening, she she finds herself, she's needing to start telling lies to kind of cover what she's doing. You know, why she was out a little bit later than normal or why this or that might have happened. And so she lies to her husband a couple of times and then she lies to her friends. But she also has her friends cover for her based on the lie that she told her husband. And so things are just getting more and more hairy and complicated as, as these meetings with Dr. Harvey progress. But the culminating moment, I would say, is one evening, one of these Thursdays that they're out, he says that he has the keys to a friend's flat nearby. Flat, I guess, is that just apartment or condo or something, Brian? Yeah, that's what they call apartments. Okay. And the friend won't be home for quite some time. And the obvious implication being that they could go up there to let the tryst that they're having grow physically intimate, just as it has already been very emotionally intimate. What was the Troll 2 line you dropped recently? Give in to nocturnal rapture? Oh, yes. Classic. That's that's their chance to give in to nocturnal rapture. That's a good pull, Brian. Yeah. And at first she declines and, and she's getting ready to go home. But she again, she goes to that train station But then she kind of goes back. She decides she's going to do it. And she goes and she meets him in the flat. But just as she arrives, they're immediately interrupted by his friend who has come home early that day. And so she kind of tries to sneak out. But the friend slyly picks up what's going on and sort of rubs it in Dr. Harvey's face, but promises to keep his secret. So, Brian, this is another goods connection for us. Yeah, it's it's the plot of the apartment. Exactly. If I'm not mistaken, Billy Wilder uses this as the inspiration for his idea of the movie The Apartment, which we talked about with Nate some time ago. Because, yeah, that movie is about a guy who (laughs) he always lets his apartment be used for affairs of various executives as a way to try and win favor. And of course, it goes wrong when the 
woman that he's started falling for is in the middle of an affair with an executive. <laughs> yeah, Fred McMurray, the professor from Flubber. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of a real asshole. Yeah, that, that was a that was a good movie. I mean, he was a, in a pretty slimy role there. Um, whereas he'd done all those Disney, or I guess that was, yeah, subsequent those Disney live action films, right? And that was a 1960 movie, so it was about 15 years after this. But I think a lot of culture had changed in those 15 years. Mm -hmm. But when they get caught, she kind of flees through the rain and embarrassment. And it's really lovely. The photography throughout this movie is really lovely, black and white. But this was one particularly lovely scene where you have um, her running and her hair is kind of getting in her face. And she's embarrassed at being caught. But also just being embarrassed to submitting into her passions in a way that's not proper, you know. Uh, later, Dr. Harvey finds her and uh, shares that he has accepted a job in Africa. So when they meet the next week, it'll be the last time that he sees her for a long time and possibly ever. And they, they're not going to share letters or anything like that. So they have one last meeting together. And so we we jump ahead to that la that next week, that last meeting, and... It turns out to be right where the movie opened. So they're about to part. We're, we're back in that cafe of the train station. And we we, we see again some of the stuff that we saw the first time through. But everything has so much more heft and emotional weight and tragedy to it. There's like the farewell tension of the conversation interrupted by Laura's chatty friend. And we like get a zoom in on that final squeeze on the shoulder. And remember, one part of that opening scene was that Laura had stepped outside briefly. And when we had seen it the first time through, we had just seen her step outside and then step right back inside. But what, when we see it this time from her perspective, we see that in her despair at losing her, the man that she's fallen in love with and him disappearing, that she had an intent to throw herself in front of the train, kill herself and her misery. And, and this is where it really kind of uh, clicked that how symbolic the train is for in this movie. It's like the first of all, it's a symbol of the raw power of her passion of, of human passion. But it's also time that doesn't stop. I mean, you know, she's an older I think Celia Johnson was like in her upper 30s when this was filmed. And, you know, she may very well the character may very well have been in her 40s or something. So certainly your your youth has passed you by and time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. And the train is also the crushing weight of modern society and propriety and the fact that that's kind of what's keeping them apart. The train is also just this dehumanizing force. It's like a society so industrialized and precisely engineered that nothing can slip through the cracks, you know? Anything that, that disrupts it is just a piece of grit in the eye. So much that happens is surrounded by discussion of when is a train going to arrive? When is something going to open or close? When is a certain thing going to start or going to stop? What time are we doing this or that? And I think that's very much intentional. It's like the way that their entire lives are built around the timing of things is, is very much a theme there. So, so to the extent that this is quote unquote, the ultimate train movie, which we can talk about in a second, I think symbolically it's the ultimate train movie. If not, relative to the train's role into the story itself sure the shot where she decides that she is gonna kill herself or is thinking about that 
is really intense. The camera like pushes in on her face as there's like this squeal of the train whistle. And I felt like it went on for like 20 seconds. It's just like this. And she kind of like bends forward and her eyes get really big. Right. And it does the camera kind of like uh, it's some weird pan and zoom at the same time. So it like distorts the angle. Yeah. Yeah. Like a vertigo shot. Yeah, I agree. That's a, that was a pretty powerful shot. And then here now the movie ends. It it, it uh, bounces back to where the daydream started. The Rachmaninoff concerto still playing, kind of wrapping up. And her husband sees that she has, quote unquote, returned. And I think that that's a word that has a layered meaning here because she has returned from her daydream that evening. But she's also returned from her her passionate affair back to him. And she's also returned to the normal, uptight, proper British life that she had, you know, found herself dallying from a little bit. Yeah, this made me wonder if he knew more than he was letting on. Yeah, I think it's a little bit ambiguous for sure. It's like he knew he may have known something was up with her beyond even just like feeling tired that evening. You know, I agree. I think that that was it's we're not supposed to know exactly what's going on with him. And I think that's part of the point is like, they're not living in each other's brains, but um, he does say that he loves her. And it's this very bittersweet finale because, you know, she still has very much on the surface, a good life, a man who cares for her two healthy, good kids. On the other hand, she's had to discard her, her true, her true love, her true passion and kind of return to this, uh, suppressed life that, that she lives. So I think it's supposed to be more tragic than it is, but it's not entirely tragic. You know, there's no death or anything. What, what did you think of this ending, Brian? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, a little bit like La La Land. It's like, what did we say? It's definitely not the darkest timeline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's the way the cookie crumbled. Yeah. Oh, which is a line from The Apartment. Very nice. All right, so as we kind of wrap this movie, just to circle back to a couple of things that I have brought up about this movie in the past, or I guess earlier in this episode. So the Ultimate Train movie, in what ways is it the Ultimate Train movie and in what ways isn't it? What do you think of my claim that this is the Ultimate Train movie, Brian? So I'm still pretty new to this subculture of train movies. We'll see as the month goes along. I'd say it definitely fits the bill, though. It's undeniably a train movie. Both of my picks are going to have train in the title. Okay. A bunch of ones I was considering but dropped have train in the title. So this one doesn't have that going for it, but it's there in the first shot and it's there all throughout. So yeah, we're in firm train territory. I would say the things that you could argue it's not the ultimate train movie is that most of the interesting stuff doesn't happen on a train. There are a couple of things that happen on a train, but in general, like the romance itself, it's some of much of it's in that cafe at the station, but then a lot of it's just about town. You just get this recurring image of the train. And it's also the train itself is not like the plot, basically. It's like there's a lot of movies where even Bridge on the River Kwai, isn't that a train bridge that they have to blow up? It's like the train itself is the source of the conflict, I guess, the on a very narrative textual level. That's right. They're building the bridge so that the train can cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing is in the past, I've called this a post-war ennui movie, 
I think you could also potentially say post-imperial ennui from a British society, because on the one hand, this movie was released like right after the war ended. Um, So it might have been filmed as the war was ending, but you have a society that's definitely like restored and stable, but it also is very clearly not entirely stable. There There are things poking through the cracks and it's on the brink of some fundamental changes and some uncertainty about where things go. And I think definitely in England, like after the, you know, we talked about it with Titanic, that was the 1910s, but I think it was a gradual process too of like what was the dominant cultural force in the entire world, the the British Empire, that sense of grandness and properness and authority just diminishing. And I think that drives some of this as well, some of the conflict. Yeah. So something that had me thinking about was how, you know, Greenwich Mean Time, that's England, kind of like the whole reason that we've got time zones and that people carry around watches and probably that it's all based in England has to do with railroads. Yeah, definitely. And also, I mean, their imperial power. They, they were kind of the center of the world. Right. But both of those things together, I think, are here in the thematic tissue of this film. Right, because once you have the train, now all of a sudden you can get across the country in a day or whatever, you know, not 30 years or whatever it was when you were like hopping on a cart and going from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, Oregon Trail. Right, and everybody's got to have the same precise understanding of time. Right. So yeah, that's Brief Encounter, 1945, black and white David Lean film. So let's talk some good things and some not so good things, Brian. I think this movie looks so beautiful. I think the black and white photography is it's really remarkable. So cinematography overall. I mean, the trains I love. I love the close-ups. I love the shots of British countryside. And even when they're in the movie theater, just it does that thing where it like looks up and you see the light coming out of the projector, but you also see the people. That's the kind of shot that always gets me. And I think it's beautiful here. Yeah, I agree. Like, I really bought the romance that these two people are attracted to each other. For sure. I love the Rachmaninoff score. I think it adds a real, like, uh, emotional undercurrent and just kind of, like, anchors the entire movie because we also know it's what's going on in her head and in her ears, literally, at the time. And... I really like the actors. I really thought Celia Johnson as kind of the main protagonist was really terrific. She kind of does a good job of straddling the the passion, but also the like, you know, not taking it too over the top and keeping her place in society stuff really well. And like seeing all that bubbling on the surface and under the surface. Any other thoughts on this movie, Brian? Well, it did remind me a lot of In the Mood for Love, which was the Chinese film directed by Wang Kar-wai that we watched a while back with your brother, where it's these like established middle-aged people who I think in that movie, they were also both married and they're going behind the backs of the spouses and meeting up and feeling a connection. But the whole movie runs its course and the sex never happens. And that was the same thing we got here. It almost does, but it doesn't. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's like a horror movie where nobody ever dies. 
<laughs> I mean, I think in some ways in the mood for love is almost like a retelling of brief encounter. I mean, you don't have the same thing where it's the one day of the week they go out and there's no trains. Trains are not a big deal. That's right. But just the, like the conflict between maintaining a sense of propriety while battling these passions and this aching sense of attraction. It's like the same thing. That's right. It's about longing. I think we said in that one, In the Mood for Love, that's the title. In the Mood for Love. They want love, but can they ever have it? Right. Not if the encounter's too brief, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like this one more than Summertime. I think Summertime was fine, but I think this one works more as a story. We talked about that. Actually, I think they did remake Brief Encounter. Oh, really? You, you mentioned a remake. I think, yeah, 1974. Let's take a look at that. I've never heard of that. Starring Richard Burton and Sophia Loren. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Directed by Alan Bridges, who sounds like someone I've heard of, but looking at his movies, I don't think I've ever actually heard of this guy. Well, that's interesting. I would I would watch it. I'd give it a try. But are you ready to rate? Any Anything else you want to throw out there? No, I think we've talked it through. I'm ready. So, Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, an eight out of eight. So, Brian, is Brief Encounter good? So, I think I'm going to give this one just into six territory. Very good. Like you said, it's very well shot. I think it's a great example of being the thing that it is. It's like, it's a romantic drama about yearning, and it delivers on all those fronts. So it's not good, It's not the first movie that I'm going to run out and be directing people towards, just due to my own personal predilections, but I think it was very effective. So that's where it lands for me. Six out of eight, very good. What do you think, Dan? So when we did our top 100 movies countdown not too long ago, I had this at number 26, and I feel good about that. In fact, I might even edge it up just a bit. For me, this is a pretty easy tour to good. Watching it a second time really made me appreciate the layers and the ironies in the story. Uh, I mean, it's just so beautiful, both the cinematography, the direction, and then the sound of it, the the intense train whistles really pull you in, the, the score I've talked about. It's just a really heartbreaking little romance. Lots of bittersweet longing and just so much happening under the current, or excuse me, so much happening under the surface without like being too aggressively on the nose about the theme. So I think you can enjoy this as it is, as a romantic drama. And I think it also gives you a ton to think about, about changing society and societal norms and gender expectations and all these things that are, I think you called it thematic tissue. I think that's a good way of putting it for this movie. I think it's really terrific. I think it's something special. I mean, it is very much in its genre confines, but it executes it so well and so movingly. This is a masterpiece for me. Yeah. Nice. For what it's worth, I'm looking at our big board and In the Mood for Love, which we discussed already 43 episodes ago. So that's kind of crazy. But Dan also gave that one an eight. I gave it a five. So this one's a little higher in my book. Gotcha. A little higher than In the Mood for Love. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, I would also put this a little bit higher, but I had In the Mood for Love in my top 100 as well. So, you know, two movies I love. And then one thing I'll just say is that I uh, I think I talked about in the In the Mood for Love episode is just over the past few years, I found myself really drawn to romances that are not first love romances that, you know, that used, in many ways, that's like the typical romance is your first love romance. But just adult romances have been more complex and more intriguing to me recently. And I think this is a really good example of that. And in the mood for love as well, too. Um, it, when done right, it can really uh, bring out some really interesting dynamics and layers and stuff. So that's Brief Encounter. That's train month coming down the tracks. Week one. Nicely done. So, Brian, next week, second week of train month. What are we going to be watching and talking about? Yeah, so we're moving on out of the locomotive. We're we're walking along that precarious little gangway into the next car. And we are going to watch Train to Busan, a Korean zombie film where the zombies are on a train, I guess. I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it. And we'll just experience that little twist of flavor in our train month. Cool. I have not seen that one either. Have you seen Snowpiercer? Haven't seen Snowpiercer. That was on the short list. Okay, yeah. That's another Korean movie where the train is the setting. So I don't know why Koreans get drawn to the the train, but maybe we can think a little bit about that as we watch Train to Busan. I haven't seen this one either. I'm excited to, to see it. So. Yes, yeah, stay tuned, listeners, for more train thoughts. Hashtag train thoughts. <laughs> International viral hashtag train what are your train thoughts today i think trains are cool I, i'm pro four four chuggas what about you yeah get train thoughts trending <laughs> and in between this and the, the next train month episode we're actually going to have a conversation with our old friend gavin and he will select a movie for us to discuss and watch too all right brian thanks and i will see you next week okay Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Join us again on The Goods.